imaginative prayer uses scripture and our God-given imaginations to bring us into the presence of God. The purpose of this practice is not only to hear God's word, but to experience him. Imaginative prayer helps us to visualize a gospel story and worship God as he really is. Let us begin with prayer. Father, you are pleased. In the quiet of this moment, we come before you and sit still in your presence. We silence every distraction and focus our attention to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We want to hear your truth and experience all that you are. Protect our hearts and minds from things that would distract us from you. Give us clarity and peace. Be with us, we pray. Amen. Take this moment to close your eyes and get in a comfortable position. Now take a moment to take three deep breaths. In your nose. And out of your mouth. As you exhale, feel the tension leave your body. Feel the distractions depart. As you inhale, imagine God's love filling your lungs and bringing life to your body. Feel the clarity coming back to your mind. Now hear the Word of God. On the first day of the Festival of the Unleavened Bread, The disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, You'll see a certain man. Tell him, the teacher says, My time has come and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I will tell you you, the truth. One of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, Am I the one, Lord? He replied, One of you who has eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him will be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who betrayed him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. And now, let's go back to that night of the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. This is also known as the famous Passover feast. The feast where the Jews would commemorate their deliverance from bondage in Egypt into the wilderness. It would symbolize the death of the firstborn all throughout the land of Egypt. And the Passover lamb was slain. And all the firstborn males in all the houses of Israel were spared 
because of the blood of the Lamb. When the disciples came to Jesus, they asked him a question. Where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? In the ancient world, this was a favored feast, which took a week to prepare for, and about eight days to celebrate. How important is this holiday to the disciples, to Peter, and James, and John, and Andrew, to Philip, to Bartholomew, to Thomas, and Matthew, to James, son of Alphaeus, to Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and even Judas. What kind of thoughts are going through all of their minds as they know something special is coming? As they've walked the earth with Jesus for three intense years and culminating in this last meal with Jesus in this upper room that they'll prepare. What kind of thoughts are going through their mind? Notice that Jesus gives his disciples very detailed information. He tells them, by other gospel accounts, to go into the city of Jerusalem and you will see a man at the entrance of the city holding a jar of water. And he tells them to go to this man and follow him. And when he enters into the house, they are to tell the owner of the house, my teacher says, my time has come and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples obey what Jesus says in faith. What do they think about Jesus being omniscient and knowing ahead of time who would be at the city gate, what the man would be holding, where to follow him, what to say to the owner of the house, and knowing that the owner of the house would agree to house them. Which of the disciples are shocked? Which of the disciples are not surprised? Which one of them still has doubts? Think about who's in the second group of disciples. You have Bartholomew, also known as Nathan, who was a true believer, open about his faith and never questioning God. Next to him you have Thomas, also known as Doubting Thomas, the open skeptic. Imagine what he's thinking when Jesus says, go into the city and find a man at the entrance. To the details, does he trust Jesus? What other disciples come to your mind when Jesus is giving these directions? Now imagine the meal has begun.
And when Jesus sits down with the twelve, while they were eating, he tells them, One of you will betray me. Imagine Jesus sitting at the head of the table, as a father would with his family. And in a moment of quietness, after three years of intense ministry, he looks around the room at the twelve whom he knows very well. A room full of men who have left everything to follow him. A room full of men who some have gotten married, but they're in full-time ministry with Jesus. Some who've left businesses, they've left professions to follow Jesus. What's the mood change in the room when Jesus says, one of you will betray me? Is there confusion in the room? When they go around the room, Matthew says they were greatly distressed. And each one of them asks, Am I the one, Lord? Is anyone taking it personal? What's the look on Peter's face? Am I the one, Lord? James and John. Am I the one, Lord? Andrew, the one who first found the Messiah. What's the disposition on each of their faces? Imagine how long Jesus let them dwell on that fact. After he had just got done proving, once again he is omniscient knowing people and places and times and dates, promises to them that one of them will betray him. When Jesus finally reveals, it's the one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me, he will betray me. And then Jesus quotes the scriptures for the son of man must die as the scriptures declared long ago but how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him when Jesus says it would be better for that man if he had never been born what's the mood in the room at that point are these words harsh for Jesus to say have they ever heard him say something like this before When Judas speaks up and he says, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus replies, You've said it. Imagine what the other disciples are doing. Who are they looking at? Who's Jesus looking at? Is there silence? Is there a commotion amongst the twelve? And what's the look on Judas's face? The one who'd been plotting after he agreed to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. What's his disposition? In John's gospel account, he says, 
When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Imagine what that must have looked like for Judas to choose to allow Satan to indwell him. If Satan comes as an angel of light to deceive and to move in, what then does that mean for Judas? Is Judas angry? Is he able to cover it up? Does he have his poker face on? Is he smirking? Is he happy to betray Jesus? What does Jesus look like when he says to him, hurry and do what you're going to do? Is Jesus sad to say that? Is Jesus brokenhearted? Is the Savior crying when he says, go and do what you're going to do? Imagine the confusion at this point in the room when none of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Some of them, since Judas was their treasurer, some of them thought that he was going to go and pay for the food or give some money to the poor. What are they saying to each other? They've been with Jesus for so long and some things still go over their heads. Are they beating themselves up once more for not knowing what their Savior is talking about? In Judas's last moments, does he look around? Does he get one last look at his cohort? The Gospel of John tells us that he left and he went out into the night. After he left, what's the look on Jesus' face? Knowing what Judas would do and where it would lead to. Knowing that he would pray to the Father if it's possible to let this cup pass. Let it pass. How does Jesus maintain his composure after Judas has left to go do what he was going to do? And now, take a moment to reflect on the omniscience of Jesus. Do you struggle with accepting that Jesus is omnipotent, that's all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnibenevolent, all-loving, and omnipresent everywhere. Has Jesus proven to you, time after time, that he's in control yet you feel like he's not in control. Do you find yourselves resonating with the disciples who have been with Jesus for so long 
but some things he says slips by their understanding. You find yourself confused. Do you find it hard to follow Jesus' commands and his guidance? Or do you find yourselves like Peter, who goes and does what the Lord says? What's your small group like? Would you have been in a room and struggling like these disciples were, walking into a Passover meal, having not served one another, walking into this meal with dirty feet? And finally, as we reflect on the choices of Judas, you find yourself worshiping other gods when you should be worshiping Jesus? Does money seem more appealing to you than following the Savior? Have you sold out Jesus for a handful of money? As you reflect on Jesus' attitude and disposition throughout the night, throughout his last night with the disciples, think about how Jesus, knowing everything, knowing the Father had put all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Think about how he never reacted to the circumstances that he was in or the people that would betray him because he knew his identity. Think about how much peace would guide and calm his heart knowing who he was in God and knowing that the Holy Spirit was empowering him. Think about our Savior never resisting the prompting of the Holy Spirit and in that being able to face any circumstance and situation whether it be betrayal or confusion to the ones he's been teaching let us become more and more like our Savior as we fix our eyes on him and his life and ministry here on earth.